0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, John and I began a discussion of the defense closing arguments in the trial. In this episode, we continue that conversation. That's coming up right after the break.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal we will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Today, we continue our look at John Lewin's perspective on the defense closing arguments in the trial. All of the excerpts in this episode are drawn from Season 2, Episodes 32 and 33 of this Jury Duty podcast. We begin with an excerpt of Dick DeGarren's closing argument in which he infers that there was some sort of illicit relationship between the criminal investigation into Susan Berman's murder and the filmmakers of the Jinx documentary. Here is DeGarren.
1: Why are we here? Well, I think a pretty good argument could be made that we're here because of Mr. Jarecki and the Jinx. Let's look at the evidence about how that happened. I thought it was quite telling when Agent FBI agent Eric Perry, Agent Perry testified that he got a call from someone that he knew as an ex-FBI agent. That ex-FBI agent had gone to work for Douglas Durst. A cushy job, as Agent Perry acknowledged. He worked for Douglas Durst, and he was asked to contact Perry to see if he could make a threat assessment. By the way, as far as Douglas Durst is concerned, we know, the evidence is clear, that Bob Durst was free from all of everything that happened in Galveston after 2005. He was on the street. He was a free man until he was arrested in 2015. Ten years with not a thing happening to Douglas Durst or Gilberta Najami, for that matter. And so... Agent Perry started digging, and uh, he talked to an author named Matt Birkbeck, who'd written a book about Bob Durst, who told him that Jurecki and Smerling had been working on the Bob Durst case and had 20 to 40 hours worth of interviews of Bob Durst. So Perry contacts Jurecki. Sure enough, they've got all these recordings of Bob Durst. And so Perry then decides to contact the LADA's office. That's how the case got here. But there's a little disconnect here because Jarecki had all of Bob's recordings by 2012. There was a two-year gap between when Jarecki turned it over to the LADA's office and Mr. Lewin took it over. Two years. That's how he got here.
2: DeGaren asserted that Andrew Jarecki did not turn over his materials to you until two years after he got them. What do you make of that, John?
3: So, first of all, that's not factually accurate. So he ended up getting the stuff in 2012, the April 18, 2012 interview. I met him in early 2013. He had already given me the copies of the interview with Bob and the sheriff note within a year. So they're wrong on the timeline, of course, because they don't know. But also, what does it matter? This is, again, and this is kind of a typical defense attorney maneuver, which is if you can't argue relevant facts about the case, try to put somebody else on trial. So try and argue. So if you think about it, the point of that is, well, Andrew, even if it were true, let's assume that was true, which it isn't. But let's assume it's true. How does that in any way affect or impact what Bob did? It doesn't. Well, is there something about it, though, that makes you feel sorry for Bob or makes you divert attention to Andrew? So as usual, it's wrong on the facts and it's wrong on the strategy.
2: And they also tried to make a general statement that Susan was a fabulist who loved to make up stories.
3: That is probably the best argument that they had. And in fact, going back, that should have been what their theory was in the case. So if you remember, and this goes back to the very basics, one of the biggest errors they made was they never settled on what their defense was going to be. Meaning, your defense is going to have to be, with respect to Susan, either... The witnesses are lying, the witnesses are honest but mistaken, or the witnesses are neither lying or mistaken, Susan was lying. And you have to only argue one of those, or you make it too easy for me. They, of course, never selected a theory, never. Bob selected the theory, and Bob's theory was number three. So the problem wasn't that that isn't true. Susan was a fabulous, there's no question. However, what's very clear is, is that Susan, although a fabulist, has there's a lot of reasons why you can explain why susan would lie to protect bob there are no reasons you can give knowing the relationship why susan would make up something that isn't true that put bob in such a negative light there isn't i mean so one of the things that i like and i enjoy the game planning planning stuff out we plotted this case out eight years ago from start to finish we had a plan we looked for every permutation of where they could go. We either shut doors we didn't want it opened, or we herded them into doors we wanted them to take. We knew everything. We didn't miss anything. Now, you can argue as to some of the tactics that we took. I go back. This is what I do. I analyze every decision that we made. I analyze it based on what we knew at the time. I analyze it based on how effective it was, and I analyze based on whether there were – other options that we knew both before and after that would have been better. Obviously, you can only make decisions based on what you knew at the time. It's unfair. You can never judge a decision, you know, based on consequences that are in no way foreseeable prior to it happening. Again, this relates to, as you know, I'm broken hearted because I lost my five-month-old puppy to a rattlesnake vaccination. There's no way in advance that I could have known that this was going to happen. There's no way. Obviously, in hindsight, you know, it's real easy to go, that was a giant mistake. But, you know, I'm rational enough to understand, you know, that's not a mistake I could have known. In this case, that's how we operated. And so we knew and we pushed and we plotted and planned everything that we thought was going to happen. Every turn, every option they had, every place they could go. They didn't do 1% of the work that we did. And it shows. You know, I mean, in the end, I've said this before, we had Superb lawyers in our team. I wouldn't trade any of our lawyers, bring of the other lawyers they had on that team. With all due respect to Chip, Chip's a very good lawyer, so I'm going to leave him out of it. But the rest of them, the best lawyers in that room, in that courtroom, were all on our side of the table. And then we worked 10 times or 100 times harder than they did. If you have less skill than the other side, You better outwork them. You have less skill, and you don't outwork them, and you have bad facts, which they did. You're in huge trouble. So that's my answer.
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work
0: Next in our discussion, I asked John Lewin to step back and assess the options available to the defense team in preparing their closing arguments.
2: What was your perspective on the defense's options in terms of their closing argument in this case?
3: Well, I think their options for their closing argument were closed by the choices they made in the years leading up to the trial. So, you know, it's kind of like... Once this trial started and they ended up with the defense they were going to have and with the stipulations they had entered in, they were done. Perry Mason wasn't going to be able to save him. So it's kind of like the only way that we were not going to win that case is either we had to have an extremely stupid or corrupt juror, or we literally, as the prosecution team, had to blow it. So they weren't in a position where no matter how good they were at that point in time, they could win it. No chance. They were down to corrupt cure or we had to give it to them. Turned out we had an outstanding jury and we weren't going to give it to them. So the options that they had, well, here's their problem. Based on the defense they chose, meaning Bob found the body and wrote the cadaver note, that meant Bob had to testify. Our goal from day one was to get Bob on the stand. I wanted Bob on the stand not so much because I thought it was necessary for us to win the case. I don't think it was. But I thought that here's an opportunity to actually get some important information. And maybe Bob will get so annoyed and so tired of coming to court that he'll go Jack Nicholson. And you can't handle the truth and give us something that we've never seen. So once we knew that Bob had to testify, and once Bob testified, it was done. There's a reason why skilled defense lawyers never want their clients to testify. And that is this. When you are a skilled lawyer, you want to be the person taking the shot at the end of the game. So meaning you want the case to come down to your ability, to your arguments. That's what good lawyers want to happen. When you're a defense attorney and you put your client on the stand, particularly in a murder case, you've now basically said to the client, okay, you've got the ball, make it happen. If they don't make it happen, nothing you can do is gonna help. So basically, they turn the case over to Bob you know, or Bob turned the case over to himself. And that was going to be a disaster from day one. Now, some people said, well, you know, Bob has the right to testify. He absolutely does. And people saying, you know what, the defense couldn't keep him from testifying. Well, to me, they had an obligation. One, let him know what was going to happen to him on the cross. And they knew. they have been dealing with us for seven years. They knew how we handled the case. They knew what we knew. They had seen us cross-examine other witnesses. They knew what we had. Two, if you're going to do it, you need to do an immense amount of prep work with your client. It wouldn't have mattered because the problem for them was Bob A. couldn't remember all the lies he told. But even if he had remembered them, he couldn't do anything about them. But, you know, you can judge for yourself the amount of time they put in and their knowledge of his prior statements, you can judge that by their direct and by their redirect. You know, I don't think I need to comment. There's a term in law called race ipsilocuter, meaning it speaks for itself. So I think it's pretty evident the level of preparation that they had. Now, what did that mean in terms of what they could have done in closing? Well, the problem is you've got to now deal with all the lies Bob has told. The smartest thing that they could have done was to say, hey, listen, Bob Durst is a pathological liar. He is. You can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. And how do we know this? Well, listen, he has lied about things that the prosecutor has proven where the lie is actually inculpatory. So in other words, and here's an example, Bob says that he sent two checks to Susan, $50,000 in early December. There's only one check, ladies and gentlemen, one check. The other check is from a year and a half before. That is not true if they lie. So therefore, you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, that's a lie that doesn't help Bob. It hurts him. So the prosecution's position that Bob only lies to help himself is not completely true. There were a few of those instances none of them which they picked up. Now, I was ready had they done so, but that's where they should have gone. Instead, what they did was, and this is what all defense attorneys do, and I've wadeered on it, and I've wadeered on this in every case. So what the defense wants in every trial is they want to say at the end, hey, listen, if you don't know every single fact in this case, if you have any questions at all, that's reasonable doubt. In a circumstantial case, If that's the standard, you will never win as the prosecutor because there will always be things you can't answer. One of the mistakes that my office made in the first Spectre trial was that the DA at the time who was handling this, who's now a private defense attorney, basically tried to prove step by step what happened when the victim was killed. And the problem is is that you can't prove it step by step. And if you try to do it step by step, you are falling into a trap because you're writing a check you can't cash. What they should have done is said, hey, listen, here's what we know. The absurdity that this woman is going to be taking a gun and putting it up to her mouth on a date with this guy makes no sense. But they wanted to answer all questions. And in doing that, they opened up an opportunity for the defense to really harp on the idea, well, they're saying that the next thing she did was X. But the physical evidence, blah, blah, blah. So these guys get up in our trial, and they say, if you remember, something to the effect of, if you have any questions, any questions about either Kathy or Susan, that's reasonable doubt. Now, actually... That's not accurate, because the standard is, not you have any questions, not you have any doubts. The issue is very simple. Based on the evidence that has been presented, have the people proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt? It's that simple. And I've lodeered on this at length during jury selection. So one of the things that I knew, I knew this would come up. So I asked questions such as, is there anybody here who is the kind of person who says, you know what, if I have any questions at the end of this case, even if it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, if I have a question, I'm not going to be able to come to a verdict. And we had some people who would say yes. And I would say, well, so you understand that under the law, that's not the standard. Because you're always going to have a question. There's no witnesses there. The issue is, based on the evidence that's been presented, Have we proven the case? And then I expanded upon that, going to listen. If, let's assume, we present this case involving the murder of Susan Berman. And when you're done, you say, you know what? They have proven, beyond any reasonable doubt, that Bob Durst murdered Susan. But you know what? I still have a question about X. And I might have said what X was. I still have a question about Kathy. I still have whatever. What would be your verdict? And everybody who we kept, said it'd be guilty. And then I would say, listen, if you find yourself going back there and saying, how do we know, or what if, or isn't it possible, stop yourselves. Stop the person next to you and say, hey, listen, that's not my job. That's not my role. So that's a very common argument that they made. We had preempted it in jury selection. We had preempted it in closing argument." And we hammered it home in rebuttal.
2: Can you discuss what you mean by a corrupt juror?
3: There are jurors who are just not very bright, who innocently and honestly just don't get it. And then there are those that for whatever reason, and it might be the idea that they can get money from the defendant later, the idea that they can write a book and that, you know, finding a defendant not guilty like 12 Angry Men might make them more money. The idea that they just hate the system. They're biased against the prosecution, the police. You know, there's some kind of the anarchist juror who's basically like the system is terrible and anything I can do to disrupt the system, I'm going to disrupt it. That's what I mean by corrupt. Now, the problem with corrupt is that you can't educate somebody out of it because it's not an honest issue. And if they are clever enough, they will be able to hide it. So I'll give you an example. I tried a case many years ago. It was a difficult case. The LAPD had a team, I think they called it a Field Enforcement Section, and they were a drug unit. And so what happens is they are monitoring a house for drug dealing. They see what looks like drug dealing. They go to the door. When they go to the door, it's open, but it's a big iron bar door. And they look through, and they can see a large amount of crack cocaine. So they happen to have an entry team with them, even though there's no warrant, and they bust through. They arrest one guy for the dope, and a second guy who hears them come in, they end up getting him for being a felon with a gun. Now, that sounds like when you listen to it, oh, the cops are making this up. They just conveniently happen to have an entry team ready to go. That sounds suspicious. They just happen to be dope and playing you. Those are all legitimate criticisms, except for in this case, The guy with the dope ended up pleading, and I ended up, because I was concerned enough, getting permission to talk to him from his lawyer, and he wouldn't testify in our case, but he told me that that was true. So, in other words, as the officers had said, it was true. Now, this is around Rodney King and OJ. This is almost 30 years ago. My defendants were black, and every member of my FES team were, were white guys. And it went in the narrative of racist LAPD. So during jury selection, I had a juror who had just retired from 25 years at LAPD, where he was like a janitor. He was an African-American guy. He gave all the right answers. Not only was he a juror that I was not worried about being on the case, I wanted him on the case. Because I thought, you know what, if there are racial issues, he will be my bridge to some of the other jurors. So when he gave his statements, I'm very careful. We actually approached, so this wouldn't be done in front of the rest of the jury. And I still remember this in front of uh, Judge Norm Shapiro, a great guy. And I said to him at the bench with the defense attorney, hey, listen, is there any issue that you've ever had as working for LAPD that would cause you to treat the officers any different who are testifying any other witness?" He says, no, I, I had a. I had a wonderful career. He was wearing a watch that was like a 25-year token of his time. And I remember him saying, listen, I met almost everybody I met. They were wonderful, hardworking. I only had positive experiences. Now, obviously, in 25 years, I did meet a few people, but that was the exception. Would anything about your experience cause you to treat these officers differently? Oh, no, absolutely not. So he was a great juror. He's not just a juror. I said, okay, you know what? He's not going to hurt me. He's a juror that I want. So they go back for deliberation. And I find out later, he walks back there and he says, I worked with these motherfuckers for 25 years. They all lie. You can't trust any of them. They're all racist. It was done. My case hung, I remember it hung 9-3. He took two people with him. But it wouldn't have mattered whether it was 9-3 or 11-1. to He basically planned out and plotted how he was going to screw my case. And I've had DAs who will tell me, hey, listen, I can tell, you know, I'm such a great judge of character. No, you're not. If you think that you can interview somebody, this happens when we interview prospective DAs for the office. Somebody will say, oh, I really love this person. They're going to be great. Well, you had a 15-minute interview with them. The people that excel in those interviews are generally people who have the skills and sociopaths. And if you think that you can tell the difference in 15 minutes, you can't. So I got bamboozled by this guy, and he hung my jury. That's what I mean by corrupt. That is different, and I've had this too. One of my – I'll never forget this. I had a juror who I really liked, had questionnaires. I could tell she was not a bright lady, but I liked her anyway. So I bring up – when my wife was in medical school up north – Our first pair of boxers were with her, and I was down here starting as a DA. One day she comes home to the house that we had rented, along with two of her roommates, and the place has been absolutely trashed. Kitchen is just a mess. There's shit everywhere. The dog's gotten into the trash. When she comes in, one of the dogs greets her at the door. The other one is hiding in the corner because he knows what he's done. So I have two pictures that I always use to illustrate this, and it's a very good example. I basically put up the first photo showing all the damage. I say to the jurors, hey, is there anybody who can tell me, just based on this, no other information, what happened beyond a reasonable doubt? And they'll all say no. Some have their suspicions. Then I tell the story of how she comes home. I don't mention the dogs. She gets her normal greeting at the door, but when she comes into the kitchen, this is what she sees. And the second photo is Boomer Boxer hiding in the corner. It's an outstanding circumstantial example. It's the best one that I know. I've used it for many years. And so then I'll ask, hey, is there anybody beyond, you know, what do you think? How strong is the case against Boomer? Uh, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how strong? Everybody will say 8 or better. There's a certain kind of juror who, and oftentimes they're going to be engineers, who they look really great on paper. And then when you ask them, they'll say, well, how do we know that he didn't break up with a girlfriend? the owner of this house, and she came by and she trashed the house. What evidence is there? So that person's getting bumped. So I do the example, and I get to this woman, and one of the questions I ask is, so there's money on the table that's not taken. So I ask, is it possible it was a burglary? And the answer is, sure, it's possible. Is it reasonable it's not a burglary, or that's a burglary? And the jurors say, no, it's not reasonable because there's money on the table and nothing's taken. So this woman says the following, She says, when I ask her, well, how strong is the case against Boomer? She says, I don't think he did it. I say, well, wait, what do you think happened? She says, I think it was burglars, but they forgot to take the dog. Now, she's saying this very sincerely. Now, of course, that is absolutely absurd, and it demonstrates that she doesn't know what's going on. That's an example of a, you can call it dumb or you can call it unaware. She's not corrupt. There's just nobody home. So that's the difference.
2: Clearly, you were aware that Bob was not only not convicted, but was acquitted in Texas for Morris Black's murder. And you had to have your eye on that jury. Did you have any suspicion that there was corruption in that jury pool?
3: I do not think in any way that Bob Durst or the defense behaved improperly with respect to that jury. I do believe that there was a juror who realized that he could monetize his service by bonding with Bob, and that that juror was the force behind the not guilty verdict, and that that juror very likely has been rewarded financially after the fact. Got it.
0: In the next part of our conversation, I asked John to reflect on a few sections of David Chesnoff's portion of the defense closing argument.
2: Again, during closing, they returned to the no evidence is evidence mantra.
3: So here's what happened. They liked the tagline, no evidence is evidence, okay? And that would have been potentially effective, although not legitimate. Because remember, I'm going to divide things between what is legitimate versus what's effective. Most of the time, in a case like this, they don't have a legitimate defense because Bob did it. However, had their theory been that Bob Durst was not there and was never there. Then they could have argued, you have no physical evidence linking Bob Durst to the crime. However, Bob Durst admitted that he was inside the place touching all kinds of items. And so, therefore, it's undisputed that he was there and that there was no physical evidence that he was there. Case over. Done. You can't make that argument. The jurors all understood that argument's asinine. What do you mean? They're admitting their guy was there. In fact, you
2: could have turned that around, John, and said, you know what? The defense is right. No evidence is evidence. Bob Durst has told us that he was there, and yet there are no fingerprints of his. That means he either woke or he wiped the scene down.
3: Kerry, I did that and Habib did that. We did exactly as you're saying. That was an argument that was made. Did you phrase it that way? Like, did you say, you know what, in this one
2: instance, the defense is right. No evidence is evidence, and it's evidence that Bob Durst went there with the intention to kill Susan Herman. Did you actually do that? Well,
3: what I believe I said was something like this. The defense has made a big effort to talk about how no evidence is evidence. But if you look, oh, that's what Mr. Chesnoff is arguing. His own client impeaches it. So that's true. There's no physical evidence in this case but Bob Durst has admitted he was there and touched all these items. So the only explanation for that, we know he wrote the note, it's not like Bob made this up, the only explanation for that, which is what always made sense, is that Bob Durst was wearing gloves. This is again an example of, and they did this over and over again. I don't think in the entire trial they ever got to a level two analysis on anything. Sometimes they never got to level one. They certainly never got to level two. We were playing at level 20.
0: Here is an excerpt from Lewin's rebuttal-closing argument, where he references the defense team's no evidence is evidence mantra.
4: Despite the defense arguments that there was no evidence uh, of Mr. Durst and that, quote, no evidence is evidence, unquote, the problem is that Mr. Durst has admitted he was in the house. So the fact that we have no evidence that he was in the house certainly demonstrates that you cannot believe in any way, shape or form that the killer, even if somehow they were not Mr. Durst would have left any evidence in this scenario. They continue. Rather, the evidence trial established that the crime scene investigation was incomplete and flawed. Again, there was no evidence to support this. This is just a naked attack post trial on the fine investigation done by the Los Angeles Police Department. If they had evidence of a flawed forensic investigation, we would have expected that to have been presented. It was not.
2: Tesslock tried to argue that Dr. Cooperman, being a distinguished professor somehow gave credibility to his initial belief that he was talking to Kathy Durst.
3: Well, it's desperation. You know, why do people jump off buildings from the 20th floor when they're on fire? They don't do that because they made a rational decision going, you know what, I think my best chance is that. They do it because they're desperate. And they realize if I stand here one more minute, I'm going to die, and this is the best chance I have. So in the end, why do you make that argument? He made that argument because what are you going to say? It was very clear. And again, as usual, they approached Cooperman in mutually inconsistent ways. They tried to infer that he had some relationship with Kathy and therefore wasn't credible. That was absurd. Now they're saying, hey, listen, Cooperman always thought it was Kathy until we brought it up. But we played the interviews. They heard him. So it wasn't that we suggested it. No one had ever asked him the question. And this goes back to Mike Struck. And listen, Joey Becerra New York State Police did a wonderful job on this. This is something they should have asked. Well, so why do you think it's Kathy? What did you base that on? As soon as we asked him, and it's recorded, it's one of the first questions that we asked when we went to see him in New York. And he said, well, because she said she was Kathy. Did you know her voice? No. So the idea that somehow Cooperman's resume puts him in a better position to know that he's talking to Kathy on the phone, again, you need to do that with either stupid or corrupt jurors. Not smart, honest jurors like we had. It was absurd. And I could see some jurors, when they would make their points, there were jurors on this case who literally would roll their eyes. You know, you could see it in their facial expressions. If the defense were an act on the gong show, they would have been gonged, you know, about three seconds into the trial. But because it's not the gong show and they couldn't get gonged and removed, they just sat there making it worse and worse and worse, something that even their client understood. Bob Durst knew it wasn't going well. Bob Durst knew that the stipulations they entered into didn't make a lot of sense. So, yeah, that was another example of absurdity. They also argued that Bob sometimes doesn't pick up on cues. He's ill, old, on the spectrum, awkward, rude, can be crude. But as Mr. Desjardins described, he's still a person entitled to the same protections as someone who doesn't act like Bob. We're not asking that you justify or accept any of his boorish or crude behavior that you've heard. Being crude and being physical with your wife is terrible, but it is not evidence of
1: a homicide in this case.
3: So what are they going to do? We had how many statements from Susan Berman? We had a confession intentionally by Bob outside of court. We had another confession where he slipped up when I interviewed him. We had numerous confessions, unintentional, during cross-examination. So, yeah, of course they're going to do that. Now, by the way, again, another thing they never understood. They never did it in jury selection. They didn't do it in closing. Bob's abuse of Kathy was not, quote, boorish. And I hit him on that. You're talking to a California jury, people who are very sensitive to domestic violence, who are sensitive to misogyny. You have a woman who's going to be the foreman who basically is Kathy. And you're going to call Bob's horrific abuse. You're going to call it boorish? I mean, you know, it was, again, I cannot even add up the number of mistakes that they made. But pretty much everything they did in this trial, From start to finish, what's a mistake?
2: And they also argued evidence of domestic violence doesn't mean he killed her.
3: Yeah, now let me back up, and I'm going to tell you what they should have done in jury selection, which they did not do. What they should have done in jury selection was to do the following. They should have said, listen, you're going to hear evidence that Bob horrifically abused Kathy. So you want to get that out, and you want to basically over-dramatize how bad it is, so that when it actually comes out it's not as bad as how you present it okay? so that's what you tell them no one is going to make an excuse for it it was a different time bob Durst's conduct was deplorable it's awful it's criminal i want to ask you something has anybody here ever themselves been a victim of domestic violence or known someone who's and you're going to see a bunch of hands right how many obviously yourselves are going to be included. How many of them of your friends that you knew were actually killed by their batterer? And you know what you're going to see? Almost none. That's what you're going to see. And so the idea is, and then you're going to say, so does everyone agree that just because somebody is a domestic violence abuser doesn't mean that they're going to kill their spouse? That is the smart argument. That is what they should have done. Instead, they never conceded during jury selection. They actually tried to make it sound like it wasn't that bad. And then they minimized it throughout the rest of the trial. So, you know, I could never have planned what the defense is going to do in this case. I could never have planned or anticipated it. We set ourselves up for an A-plus defense. We were ready. We were prepared for whatever they brought on. You know, we basically prepared to do battle with China, okay, with a nuclear power, someone with a bigger army. And instead, what we got, what it actually happened was we got Grenada. That's why you prepare for the best defense you're going to get. And if it falls short, there's no damage. You're ready to go, and you just obliterate them.
0: That concludes this episode of Jury Duty. The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment, our final chapter of this season, as we bring to a close our conversation with Prosecutor John Lewin about his experience of the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. Also, we'll preview for you where we're heading next on this Jury Duty podcast. And finally, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.